Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Chrysell and Diane Dufrenai are your hosts every week right here on AM1290, repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara, at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets, and in Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Hi, Neil. How are you today? Well, I'm back from the East Coast. Um, do you detect any... New York accent I may have picked up when you I was lost in New York. It all. You you gone, you got it, you came back and it's like you it's like you're from the Midwest. Oh, thank you. I was worried, you know, because I spent time in DC and then New York and I was afraid I would, you know, pick up my New York accent again. All of the listeners are I'm sure uh in concert with me and agreeing that you do not have a New York accent any longer. And because I, I uh, did the show last week from the East Coast, um, we were able to get an East Coast guest for today. Exactly. I know. We're thrilled to have with us. We have Mario Tucan, who's a managing director at SK Capital, which is a private equity firm based out of Ohio. Is that correct? New York. New York. Okay. Right. Based out of New York. Perfect. Well, Mario, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. So the first article today is, um, you know, we've talked a lot about Bitcoin, uh, but there was an article in the New York Times this weekend about stable coins. Uh, and I thought it was worthy of a little discussion. And uh, typically, uh, a uh, cyber currency uh, has, you know, all kinds of fluctuations. Uh, the idea behind st uh, stable coins is that they're pegged to an existing government-backed currency. So the idea is that they're not subject to the type of uh, 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 unpredictability of ordinary uh, Bitcoins. Uh, but the article goes on to say that many stable coins are backed by types of short-term debt that are prone to bouts of illiquidity, meaning that they can be hard or impossible to trade during troubled times. And one of the most... Uh, widely used uh, backups to stable coins is commercial paper. And if you remember in 2008, commercial paper market dried up so that there is you know, a concern or should be a concern that in a period of economic distress, <coughs> what is uh, backing up a stable coin may not be so stable. Um, and um, according to uh, some of the SEC filings, the standard disclosures are uh, hard to know exactly what is behind each uh, different kind of stable coins. And so the SEC is looking into how we can get a, how they can get a better, uh, cl more clarity as to what each different stable coin is used as a backup. Wow, that's that's a, that's going to that's going to be quite a job, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that really is crazy about all of this is that uh the whole purpose, well, one of the purposes behind Bitcoin uh, is to um, get out from under, I don't believe any of this, but that, that's the story, to get out from under uh, 
government-controlled currency. And here they are creating stablecoins that is supposedly tied to government uh, security. So, you know, what's the point of all this other than to do drug deals? I mean, it's just really uh, kind of crazy. Uh, the second article is, is, is again, about uh, the whole uh, uh, cyber, uh, cyber currency um, uh, boom. And this is about borrowing against your bit Bitcoin. And what people are doing now, uh, like um, they typically do with stock, is they're using Bitcoin as collateral to leverage their bets. And they're borrowing Bitcoin, and then they're going out, and not only are they buying more Bitcoin, but they're buying houses, cars, and other things. And uh, as we all know, when you margin or borrow against a security, uh, it is based on a percentage of the pledged holdings value. And so Bitcoin is swinging all over the place. So you can imagine if you put up collateral uh, with Bitcoin and the stock market or whatever it is that you're buying goes down and Bitcoin collapses, uh, you're really in trouble. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because I just recently got a call from somebody who has a bank that's willing to lend them, you know, regular margin uh, requirements. So they're lending them 50 percent on this stuff and they're looking you know, to invest it, which is not allowed with margin. You can't margin uh, security and then invest it in the market. And so, you know, it's, it's just interesting the risk that these um, banks are willing to take on something as risky as Bitcoin and leveraging it. And one of the things that the article goes on to say is that typically borrowers pay 8.95% currently uh, with these Bitcoin loans. So you're paying a very, very high interest rate. Which is significantly higher than what margin is. Margin right now is, is you know, down there in the threes. Um, the next article is from the Wall Street Journal from their uh, tax expert. And it just gives um, a bunch of uh, things that uh, taxpayers should take a look at, given the talk that there'll be a tax hike uh, in 2022. And um, again, no one can know for sure, but um, the uh, tax uh, columnist, Laura Sanders, suggests that uh, one, you accelerate ordinary income, to defer any deductions that you can. Uh, and uh, the last one is really kind of funny. It says, give money away. But part of that is because the there's going there's there is talk about changing the rules in of of uh, of giving them away uh, exempt uh, uh, benefits uh, or monies to individuals. So, so that's $15,000 a year currently yep. that you can give to any individual tax free. Yep. Uh, next article is from the New York Times. You know, talk- before you move on, though, Neil, I think it's important to say, you know, all of these people like to speculate about what the tax code changes may or may not be. And the reality is, is that nobody knows. So it's very difficult to plan ahead of time. And oftentimes when individuals do plan ahead of time, they can get it wrong. And so I caution you to just go ahead and do all these things, give money away, um, you know, accelerate ordinary income, all of these things without um, speaking with your tax advisor. 
Well, I go a step further. I, I believe that anyone that makes investment decisions based on taxes is making a mistake. So I, I totally agree with that. I think that there are so many people today that and yesterday that are essentially driven by tax considerations, uh, such as people who love California, but they spend their time in Detroit because they don't want to pay taxes uh, in California, and they're 80 years old. So just goes to show you. Um, next article is from the New York Times, and <clears throat> it's interesting. It, it, it talks about the fact that because the economy is slow and companies are so rich in cash, there is a, um, a lack of loan growth. And the banks, because they don't have places to put their money, are putting their money in government bonds. And, and the reason that's interesting is that you know, we talk about where interest rates are. And you know, I think part of the reason interest rates are where they are is because banks in general are buying a lot more government bonds than they otherwise would uh, simply because they have no place to put their money. Yeah, you know, their balance sheets are very fat. There's lots of cash with all the stimulus money in, in around coupled with the fact that, you know, the 10-year treasury is floating between 1.2 and 1.5, which is incredibly low. You know, when you when you harken back to 2000, you know, a lot of people keep asking me if we're in a bubble, you know, treasuries were paying 6.2% at that point in time versus, you know, under one and a half today. It's, there are very few places to go to, to keep up with inflation. Um, true. And the final article today is entitled Steady Demand Lifts Muni Bond Prices. And uh, the article begins by saying the yield on the S&P Municipal Bond Dex uh, fell below 1% for the first time since it was created in 1998. <clears throat> and this, in a sense, is partly because of what we just talked about. Uh, the, 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 the higher taxes are driving more people uh, to look for uh, a tax efficient investments. And this is having an effect not only in terms of investments, but it's having an effect on lowering borrowing costs for municipalities. And um, they give a whole bunch of examples of um, places that anticipated a certain interest rate when they put out their bonds in the last three months and they found that they were able to do it at significantly less rate. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. 
Since 1948, Direct Relief has worked in the U.S. and worldwide to equip doctors and nurses with life-saving medical resources. Here's Dean Axelrod. Direct Relief is a humanitarian organization. We support local healthcare facilities here in Santa Barbara in all 50 states and around the world. We support them by supporting programs like maternal and child health, disease prevention and treatment, and disaster preparedness and response. Direct Relief doesn't receive any government grant money. All of the support Direct Relief receives is through private donations. Our donors know that none of the money they donate is going to go to pay for fundraising expenses or the CEO's salary. It goes directly to programs with less than 1% of all of our donations going to pay for administrative overhead. To learn more about Direct Relief, to volunteer, or to make a donation, go to directrelief.org. That's directrelief.org or call 805-964-4767. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So if you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having Mario Tucan, Managing Director at SK Capital, a private equity firm out of New York. Um, Mr. Tucan plays a leading role in all aspects of the firm's investment strategy and execution. So Mario, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. So tell us, you know, you are a private equity company and your specialty is chemicals. How did you get in? I'm sure you didn't wake up as a child and say, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be a chemical private equity uh, manager. So tell us, how did you get into private equity? And how specifically into chemicals? Well, well, Diane and Neil, first, thanks for having me on the show, and it's it's uh, I appreciate being on. You're right, Diane. Uh, definitely didn't start off as my dream as a child. Um, was far from it. Um, but with that said, let me give you some perspectives on the chemical sector and why we focus on this sector. And there's probably a couple of reasons behind it. You know, one, we all happen to be chemists by background. So myself and my partners, different capacities, different backgrounds, but we all have been involved in the chemical sector for our careers. So personally, you know, we can get into it in more detail later, but I started off as a strategy consultant in chemicals, then an investment banker focused on M&A advisory in chemicals, and then a principal investor, private equity investor in chemicals. But my partners were former operators, CEOs, uh, entrepreneurs, all within the chemical sector. So this is a sector we know exceptionally well. And it's important to know the industry when you're investing in the industry. The, the second reason I'll, I'll mention is, you know, unlike other sectors, and you name it, from consumer to technology to healthcare, chemicals is truly the industry of industries. It's a very broad sector, and it really represents the building blocks for other sectors. Chemicals goes to everything. Now, we don't feel and touch it similar to consumer brands or retail, but you know the, the desk you're sitting on right now, the chair you're sitting on is made of some kind of material. 
the coatings on a you know table top in your kitchen is made of some kind of coating material. Everything we touch has a chemical linkage. And we like that because it provides a natural hedge, a natural diversification around end market exposure as we're investing in multiple segments. So hopefully that gives you kind of a bit of a perspective of why we like the space, but that's ultimately fundamentally why we invest in the sector. And so for you personal, Mario, personally, you actually, you were an investment banker in this same space. What were the reasons that you made the jump from investing an investment banker to the private equity side? That's a great question. I'll give you a very blunt answer. So my response to that, so it's, it's usually tough to go from investment banking to private equity at a senior level, which I did. Um, most transitions from investment banking to private equity happens at a much, much younger age. Investment banking analysts or associates, they do two, three, four, five years and they move into private equity. It makes sense. For me, um, you know, as, as an investment banker, my last stint was running the um, investors, Diane, why you kind of thought about Ohio. I, I was in Ohio uh, running the chemicals, the global chemicals investment banking group for a middle market firm based in Cleveland. And I built that firm to one of the leading practices on Wall Street uh, over an eight year period. And uh, I'm gonna answer your question here in a second, but um, as, I, as I built the firm and I built the practice, the reason was it was highly successful is I really brought um, a combination of M&A advisory as well as strategic consulting, which is my background as well, of uh, my past life, past past life, to advising clients, to advising on strategic initiatives, M&A, buyouts, take privates, you name it. And working with private equity clients on an extended period of time on multiple facets of a transaction. And I'll just be very blunt and say, you know, while I was working with tra on transactions and saying, this is taking four years, multiple transactions, a lot of thought, a lot of good strategic advice. And, you know, they're making X amount, $100, million, $200 returns while I'm making a $3 million M&A fee. My thought was, you know what? I, I prefer to do that. <laughs> I prefer to jump and actually be the person driving the initiatives and really generating the returns for my investors versus just being an advisor. So that was my natural thought process around making the transition. And then how did you find um, SK Capital? Because it seems like it was like made for you. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So myself, my partners, uh, so I have four other partners, managing partners at the firm. Um, and we've all known each other for a long time. So as I was talking about the, um, my role as a kind of strategic advisor on the investment banking side, they were one of my clients that I worked on multiple transactions with them on. And, you know, frankly, uh, when I first retired, quote unquote, from investment banking and I left, um, they were one of the firms, more than many firms that approached me to join them. And what I liked about their platform was first, they had a great brand, but second, um, they were focused on one sector, the sector that I knew exceptionally well. Because keep in mind, most private equity firms today 
are generic generalist firms. Nothing wrong with it, but they're focused on a ton of different sectors. They don't have a deep dive expertise anywhere. And that's a flaw in my book. That feels like, like a commodity business versus being really a specialty investor in a sector. You know, you mentioned the word commodity. Uh, one of the things that comes to mind when you talk about the chemical business is that it is um, a um, it is a commodity, unless there's a technological development that uh, is uh, coming to the surface. Uh, if you look at individual chemical stocks, uh, they tend not to have particularly exciting growth patterns. Uh, so. Uh, it's just an interesting thing that you would pick chemicals for private equity. It doesn't seem to have the same uh, dramatic upside as some of the tech uh, businesses. Yeah. So, so Neil, that's a great um, observation. And what I would say is it really depends on how you define the chemical sector. So for us, our definition is not the, uh, the, uh, the large petrochemical plants and pictures you see in the news with plants you know, exploding in Baton Rouge or in Houston um, and so forth. We focus on the entire supply chain spectrum of the chemical sector, meaning we have some investments that are more commodity. We have multiple investments that are intermediates, but we have a ton of businesses that we own that are really downstream specialty chemicals. And those are truly formulated products, R&D driven, not commodity at all. And healthcare ingredients, that's a chemical, right? Flavor and fragrances, that's a chemical. So we define that as a chemical sector, uh, food and beverage ingredients and so forth. So it's, it's a much broader industry than just commodity. And so, so given that, that you have this, would you say that your portfolio is primarily based of more of that startup type of company as opposed to that large, you know, the, the large chemical company that you think of in the S&P 500? Yes. So, so what I would say, Diane, is um, when we use the word startup, it's really referring more to venture capital um, as opposed to us being in private equity. So for us, all the Will you define that for us? Because I find that all too often private equity and venture capital gets lumped together in the same kind of broad yeah. stroke. And it oftentimes is confusing to people. Absolutely. So Diane, um, it, it is confusing and they do get lumped in together quite often. Uh, what I would say is for venture capital, it's really growth investments for new concepts technology. I mean, venture capital doesn't exist in the chemical industry because all the businesses are pretty much operating, right? They're operational businesses. So venture capital really lends itself more to technology companies, healthcare companies, new concepts, pre-revenue, pre-being commercial, and really getting in growth capital, startup capital to build a business, to build a management team, to build a commercial staff. In private equity, you're investing in existing businesses. You're, you're investing in businesses that exist today. You want to build them. You want to build them bigger and better, but they are operational, long legacy businesses. So that's the, that's the key distinction between the two. 
You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. This is a test to find out if you know it all when it comes to children. Time starts now. Name one of the leading killers of U.S. children age 1 to 13. What's the best way to protect children in a car crash? At what age and size should a child start using a booster seat? Where can you find the answers to these questions? Car crashes are one of the leading killers of U.S. children. Many of those deaths could be prevented by making sure that kids are in the right seat for their age and size. Don't assume you know it all when it comes to car seats for your child. Go to safercar.gov slash the right seat and know for sure. That's safercar.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Community Alert. A positive preparation for disaster. It's designed to keep you informed about how to be prepared, not if, but when disaster strikes. Community Alert is heard Tuesdays at 11 a.m. and 9 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. on AM 1290, the Santa Barbara News Press radio station. Community Alert, not if, but when disaster strikes. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So Mario, before the break, we were talking about private equity companies versus, you know, venture. And, you know, I think one of the major distinguishing factors is, you know, you have to get it right. Like ventures, they can have one out of 20 that hit and they're considered a success. Whereas private equity, it's much more crucial. So what is an investment return standard that you're held to in in the private equity space? Like, what does that look like? Great question, Diane. And and you're absolutely right. In in venture capital, I I don't want to seem critical of venture capital investors, but they're investing in 60 different opportunities a year. And they're hoping a couple hit and the rest are flops, right? And those couple will make up the returns for all the losses of the other 58. Um, in private equity, especially for us, every business investment has to work. Um, now, they, they don't always work out in private equity. There's obviously you know failures across the industry, but that's the intent going into the investments. Um, in private equity, it's, it's there are varying ways of measuring success or return thresholds. Um, 
in general and private equity as, a, as, a, as an industry, I would say return thresholds have gradually come down over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, and the reason behind it is there's a lot of capital in the market. The market is flooded with, with capital. There's a lot of private equity firms. There's many more today that existed 20 years ago. And that creates a competitive environment and a supply demand imbalance drives lower returns. Um, 15 years ago, I would tell you most private equity groups were modeling kind of low to 25% returns. And now many are modeling, you know, high teens. So it's definitely come down from our IRR perspective. Um, for us as a firm, we're not as focused on internal rate returns. We're more focused on multiple of invested capital, MOIC. And for MOIC, what that means is if you invest a dollar, how much you give back when you exit? And you get back $3, that's a three times cash and cash return, MOIC. Um, and the reason we think about it that way is the IRR return threshold tends to drive uh, bad behaviors around the industry. Um, the private equity industry has gained some kind of reputation around quick flips, meaning they buy a business, they make some quick changes, they take some costs out, and they sell. And if they can sell as quickly as possible, that boosts the IRR, but doesn't really impact the multiple uninvested capital. So for us, what we're focused on at SK Capital is how much are we returning to investors? And if that happens in one year or 10 years, it is what it is. We want to make sure we're building the business the right way. And the other thing that that the other advantage of that is interest rates are so low, investors right now aren't that interested in getting out. Uh, if you're going to show a good return, and you tell them that you know you decided there's an opportunity to sell, they may get mad at you because they're not going to be able to replace the money at a return that they're getting from you. Well, you know, you know, Neil, it, that's an interesting comment. So we um, so we acquire businesses in various forms. Um, you know, we buy businesses from entrepreneurs, from family-owned businesses, uh, corporate carve-outs, take, take private public companies. And I will tell you, um, a little off topic, but a lot of the entrepreneurs we're buying businesses from, they want to sell. And to your point earlier around taxes going up, we're seeing right now a rush of businesses for sale uh, trying to close before year-end for tax reasons. And we actually saw the same rush last year. It didn't happen, right? They, they rushed, 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 and taxes, they go up this year. Uh, but with that said, a lot of them are concerned around, okay, great. I'm saving 5% in taxes or 10% in taxes that goes up next year. But what do I do with my money? I can't invest anywhere. That, that generates the same kind of return. So that's definitely a dilemma that most investors and most um, family-owned businesses are dealing with. You know, this was so interesting. I remember years, years, years ago when I was getting my MBA, one of the things that we learned is that when you do an internal rate of return calculation, there's an assumption built into it that your reinvestment rate is equal to your current return. And as uh, that is no longer the case, it really does change the, the calculus. Absolutely. No, I, I, Neil, absolutely. And 
I, again, uh, the internal rate return, you have two issues there. One is how do you offset the return with a new investment gen that generates a parity return, which is very difficult in this market. And the second, it's somewhat artificial. It can be manipulated, right? Because if you have an investment and you sell it within nine months of owning it, but your cash return isn't great, your IRR can be through the roof. And that's just an artificial number. You know, I, I imagine one of the advantages you have when you're talking to particularly family-owned businesses is um, that you're not the typical um, private equity firm that's going to fire a bunch of people because you want to goose up the return immediately. And, you know, I know I sold a business years ago and I was concerned about my employees because, you know, you're getting out, but we're, they're staying in. And um, to the extent that you can show that your long-term uh, uh, success is 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 basically uh, doing the right thing for the long term, not just uh, goosing up profit margins, you probably have an advantage with the, the, those family-owned businesses where they care about their people. Absolutely. So what I would say is, and this is not a you know plug for SK Capital, but um, a lot of uh, family-owned businesses, privately held businesses are do find our platform quite appealing because we are, we are long-term investors. We view ourselves as business builders. And, um, and because of that, to your point, Neil, we're, we are not looking for the quick win. We're looking for a long-term uh, strategy. So let's talk a little bit about that. So what does the business owner get besides a big check when they sell to you at SK Capital? So, you know, so what are the benefits? Yeah, Diane, uh, great question. So what, what I would say is it, it depends on the type of transaction. Um, if, we're, if we are uh, buying a business from a large corporate, so a corporate carve-out, the corporate is focused on um, certainty, will we get a deal closed, value, and speed. If we're um, buying a business from an entrepreneur, family-owned business, it's a lot more emotional, right? Mm -hmm. So they're focused on preservation of culture and brand. They are focused on their people. And frankly, a lot of these transactions involves the business owners staying involved. I mean, these owners built this business over an extended period of time. There's a lot of tribal knowledge with these family owners. So when we buy a business, we're not booing them out. We're saying, roll some equity be a partner with us. We'll acquire a majority stake. You can be a super minority, stay involved in the business, be the chairman, be on the board, be an advisor to us and help us build this business together. And they find those three components very important. We're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB and we'll be right back. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. 
Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Are you ready to start and run your own successful business? Ready to grow your small business or home business? Women's Economic Ventures is a local nonprofit helping women start and build successful businesses. In addition to their highly successful self-employment training program, Weave offers services to help women succeed at every stage of their business, from startup and launch to building and sustaining a business, including individual business counseling, professional networking events, advanced business training, and small business loans to start or expand a business. Over 1,000 local businesses are now owned and operated by women who have taken part in programs and services. Whether you're ready to start up, launch, build, or sustain your business, Women's Economic Ventures is right here to help you make it happen. Call 965-6073 or visit weaveonline.org. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So, Mario, I noticed that you sit on several boards for various um, companies. Are those um, portfolio companies? And you know, back to my question before the break about what SK Capital provides besides a big check, what sorts of... Um, business business tools do you give or provide to these companies to help them grow to that next level? Yeah, no, very, um, actually really important question, Diane. So, you know, back to uh, my commodity comment on private equity as an industry. So for us, we're, we are private equity investors but we, we truly view ourselves as transformational investors. And the, the reason I say that is if any of your listeners are thinking about private equity and investing in private equity funds or firms, knowing where you're investing and what these firms do with companies is quite important, as opposed to throwing darts in the dark and hopefully a few of them work out. So when you say transformational, we don't just invest in businesses that are just growing on a steady state and there's not much we can do with it. We have to have some kind of lever, some kind of initiative to implement and execute around the business. And it could be commercial excellence. It could be operational excellence. It could be a roll-up strategy, meaning this industry is quite fragmented and we can acquire other businesses and use the business we're acquiring as a platform to acquire other roll-up um, um, acquisitions um, and be acquisitive longer term. So th- there, there, must, there must be some kind of lever to pull and really transform the business from its steady state upon acquisition. So for us, um, that's quite important because we want to make money for our investors and generate good returns in good and bad markets. And the reason I say that is 
for, again, for all your listeners and for, for you two as well, the, the market has been in a somewhat fantasy the last eight to 10 years, meaning it's been going up and up and up. And that applies to private equity as well. A lot of private equity investors have done okay um, by simply investing in a business, having it grow modestly, but the valuation multiples increase during their hold because the market overall is increasing. And the market has been on an upswing for eight to 10 years, which is very, very long. The recession we had during COVID, the beginning of COVID, was the shortest recession, I, I believe, in history. It was four months yeah. long. So, I'm, so in looking at private equity investors and how they generate returns and how they perform during both cycles is an important criteria. For us, we performed exceptionally well during good times and we performed pretty damn well during bad times. And that's an important criteria. Who, who are your investors? Our investors are predominantly um, endowments, um, family offices, um, pension funds. Um, so that's typically the category of our largest anchor investors. And but do you have any pressure uh, because you have too much dry powder sometimes and uh, uh, the investors are pushing you or you, that doesn't bother you? It, it doesn't bother us as much, Neil. And the reason behind it is, so every private equity has a different fund life. And the reason we have the flexibility to be truly business builders, the right things for the business over whatever period of time makes sense is because our life is long. Our fund life is long. So we have a 20 year life in our funds and that allows us to really be flexible, not be pressured to do irrational, make irrational investments and do the right thing. So pressure is not really part of the equation here at all. Do you still raise money? We do. We do. We are on. So we have two funds uh, and I can't comment too much about fundraising because that's a compliance issue, but um, that's an SEC issue. But we have two funds under our, the SK umbrella. Um, and the two funds are really geared to be size agnostic, meaning we can invest in businesses that are generating 10 million of EBITDA, earnings before interest in taxes. And we can also invest in businesses that are generating 500 million of EBITDA. So we're, the barbell is pretty, the spectrum is pretty wide. And we have a, we have a flagship fund which is focused on the larger transactions. And we have a middle market fund that's focused on middle markets investing. Now, when you have an investor come in, are, do they have to choose one or the other or are they allocated across both? Um, some investors are in both, um, but the fund cycle, the fundraising cycle is kind of off for the two funds. So they're, so they're typically not being raised at the same time. Gotcha. And the investor pool, I answer your point, uh, could, could also be quite different. Um, in terms of profile investor for the larger fund versus the middle market funds. And I take it uh, one of the the advantages you've had the last few years is with interest rates so low, your borrowing costs are dramatically lower so that your leverage returns have really probably gone up more than even you anticipated. Leverage returns are, yes, definitely there's an impact there in terms of lower cost of debt. And frankly, our lower cost of debt is also a function of 
um, we do not uh, leverage the help. Most private equity groups will go out for a new transaction, a leverage buyout and say, ask the banks, give me max leverage, whatever it takes. And for us, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we have modest leverage. We have as an, as a leverage buyouts. There's, there's leverage, but our leverage is typically quite below the average private equity investor because we're thinking about longer term. We don't want to suffocate the business. We want to do add-on acquisitions. We want to have enough dry power, power to do that. So we want enough firepower to execute on our plan versus leveraging the hill and hopefully things work out. So now how often do you win a deal to buy out a company, e even though you might not be the highest bidder? So, so for us, you know, one like of the... you, it feels like your firm is a little bit more hands-on and partnering as opposed to just a typical PE company. That's a great point, Diane. So what I would say is, um, you know, typically for us, and one of the advantages of being a sector focused firm and not just chemicals, it can be a sector focused firm in healthcare or life sciences or, um, you know, another specialty industry. Um, we have very broad relationships. We have a massive network uh, of companies we know, industry executives, referral business. So many times we are acquiring businesses on a proprietary basis, meaning there's no process, there's no banker involved. We have a relationship with the owner, founder, CEO, whoever it may be on the other side, and we're buying the business on a rifle shot basis. Um, so there's really no value discovery, evaluation discovery. In situations where it's more competitive and we're involved in a banker process and bidding for a business, uh, typically the merits that we provide to an owner around what we just discussed uh, a few minutes ago, who we are, partnership, our longer term strategy, not suffocating the business, bringing resources is going to help supercharge the business going forward. And especially if they're rolling equity into our deal, we typically would buy businesses below the highest bidder because they're looking back and saying, I'm going to roll 25%, pick a number, 25% to this deal. But the second buy the apple is going to be quite big because I have trust, faith, and confidence that these guys are going to generate, you know, outsized returns, alpha returns versus me doing it on my own. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSP, and we'll be right back with our final segment. For prospective home buyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. 
When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service, every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I was sensitive to lights and sounds, so I built secret hiding places where they couldn't get in. Sometimes, I did the same things over and over, until one day, I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So Mario, as I was on the SK Capital website and I was poking around, I see that your firm has a sustainability focus. So what, you know, ESG or sustainability kind of has a different meaning to everybody. And so I was wondering, what is your ESG principles, which stands for environmental, social, and governance, and how do you implement them? That's a, that's a really important question, not just for this discussion, but every company, every corporate board is talking about the ESG, and it's become a, a real buzzword uh, in, this, in this environment, and it's important. And it's interesting. It's, it's almost, um, I think most listeners that are listening to this are thinking chemicals, ESG, how does that link up? Because you think chemicals and hazardous you waste. Polluting, and right. Polluting and, you know, plants exploding in Texas and so forth. And what I would tell you is for us, um, a, a couple of observations or comments. You know, one, to Neil's uh, question earlier in the segment around commodity versus specialty, you know, a lot of what we do is downstream, uh, specialty chemical manufacturers, um, where they're truly formulating products, and um, and a lot of them could, be, a lot of them are environmental solutions. Um, they're they're providing products and materials that's replacing toxic materials, that's replacing old world solutions and and uh, applications. Um, so that's part of our ESG. Uh, focus. You know, the other piece is, you know, back to your point, Diane, around what do you do with these companies? You know, one of the areas that we really focus on is operational excellence. Now you will think, you know, what does that have to do with ESG? And a lot of companies we acquire are, you know, family, privately held. And with all due respect to them, they don't have the level of sophistication and processes around their manufacturing process. Um, meaning there's a lot of waste, which is terrible for the environment. So we go in there and we help reduce scrap, reduce waste, improve efficiencies, and reduce overall pollution and um, you know bad elements to the environment overall. Um, so that's, that's on the environmental side, between products, green products, green chemistries, um, 
operational improvements, operational efficiencies. There's a lot, a host of different ways of, of driving that ESG angle. And then on the other parts of ESG beyond environmental, you know, we are very focused on equality, right? Um, you know, di diversity across our companies. Um, you know, for example, we have a business called Arproma, which is based in Europe, where, you know, the CEO is a woman, female CEO, and she has a significant sustainability agenda across the, the company. Um, so for us, you know, sustainability is not just a kind of pick and choose across the portfolio, it's a widespread, um, firm-wide initiative. And so how do you actually measure those types of things? It's a, it's a real question that the entire investment industry is grappling with. And I'm, I'm just interested in your perspective. Like what happens when they miss it? Yeah, so, so um, it's interesting you say that. Um, so a couple of things, there, a couple of comments there, uh, Diane. So one, uh, one of the larger uh, organization for chemicals is called the ACC, American Chemistry um, uh, Council. And they have industry standards, uh, benchmarks, and metrics around a host of different um, categories, including sustainability. So we use that as an example, as one of our you know, benchmarks, or hurdles to focus on, among others. Excuse me, um, Ma Ma Mario, I um, just want to thank uh, uh, Diane for asking the most complicated question with no time left. Uh, <laughs> so we'll have to have you back. Uh, thank you. It's okay. really fascinating. Very, very interesting. Um, and uh, thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week. It's 3.30.